Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor and best-selling author of the book Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. And I am Jeremy Kaur, host of the New Books in Medicine podcast. American healthcare is broken. Across the United States, there are over 200,000 patient deaths from medical error every year, growing physician burnout outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed from simply the hype. Our goal is that everyone from healthcare consumers to political and medical leaders will find value in the discussions on our show. You may not agree with the different solutions offered, but you will never again conclude that nothing can be done. We hope you will join us. Please subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcast software. For more information, visit our website at www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Hello, this is Mikey McGovern, and you're listening to New Books in Medicine. In particular, this is the first of a pair of interviews on communication in healthcare today. We tend to think of medical advances in terms of biology and technology. New drugs, targeted cancer therapies, and surgery with lasers. But all of these advances represent only a single aspect of how patients experience the healthcare system. In their book, Listening for What Matters, Avoiding Contextual Errors in Healthcare, published by Oxford University Press in 2016, physicians Saul Wiener and psychologist Alan Schwartz argue for a different kind of revolution in healthcare, listening better to patients to glean broader context about their lives that might lead to more effective care. The book offers countless harrowing and dare I say fascinating, examples of when details not usually encountered in the context of the clinic really come to matter. While the problem itself is easy to articulate anecdotally, it is unusually difficult to measure. Wiener and Schwartz provide a clear and engaging walkthrough of their creative approaches to empirically studying this phenomenon and offer crucial recommendations for how it can be addressed. As they both work in medical education, they have a strong appreciation for the battleground of priorities that is the modern clinic. Institutional strictures for measuring quality often conflict with the ability of individuals to provide excellent care 
So their approach is wholesale. Change how doctors are trained, along with these measures. They even offer words of advice for how patients can better cue their doctors into their own context. As such, this is a book for those who work in various aspects of healthcare, along with those of us who inevitably experience it. I enjoyed my discussion with Saul and Alan, and I think you will too. Hi, everyone. This is Mikey McGovern, and you're listening to New Books in Medicine. I'm here today at the University of Illinois Chicago in the Department of Medical Education, speaking with Saul Wiener and Alan Schwartz about their new book, Listening for What Matters Avoiding Contextual Errors in Healthcare. Saul, Alan, welcome to New Books in Medicine. Thank you. Thank you. So the way we like to get things started here is for uh, our authors to give us a little bit of context on how they got into their respective fields and also how the work at hand came about. So uh, shall we start with you, Saul? Sure. Uh, Thank you. So, well, if we go back far enough, I would say that it began with my having a dad who was a social scientist um, and me wanting to be a physician. Uh, So ultimately, these two areas kind of came together. Uh, I was uh, actually in college. I did my thesis on the development of the allopathic medical profession in Nepal and uh, realized that I really loved looking at medicine from a social science perspective. Uh, When I was in medical school, I ended up doing research uh, looking at what happens when people who don't have health insurance trying to get care. And uh, again, really enjoyed that kind of social science perspective. Uh, When I was a resident, quite frankly, all I could do was show up and get through the day. Uh, no research during those four years. Um, ended up training as both an internist and a pediatrician through a dual program. And then I got here uh, around 1997. Uh, and actually, Alan and I met not long after that. And initially, my research focused on uh, health policy, um, on the issue of access to care for the uninsured. But I started to realize that we didn't really need any more papers published on why it's bad not to have health insurance, uh, that this was pretty obvious um, and that it was something I was more interested in being an activist about than trying to answer research questions. And I think what got me interested in this topic came more from actually just uh, taking care of patients and teaching residents and medical students. And one of the things I started to notice is that uh, young doctors were getting better and better at what we call evidence-based medicine, which is kind of knowing what the latest research evidence is and the treatment guidelines are. And they could kind of rattle those off, often better than me. Uh, But what I would discover when I walked into the room to see the patient after I'd kind of heard this very uh, elegant presentation is that uh, there were things going on in that person's life uh, that really complicated everything and that, you know, the perfect medicine was not affordable or, uh, or the dose that they were supposed to be taking, um, they, they, they weren't able to read the instructions or they, uh, or they had um, uh, lost uh, somebody in their life who had been helping them manage their medication because their vision was failing. I mean, on and on and on. And uh, what looked like a perfect plan of care would suddenly look like it just wasn't going to make sense for that person at all. Um, and so I started to realize that there was this whole area of kind of quality and performance uh, that, quite frankly, um, uh, was very important and that wasn't really getting measured or looked at. Uh, and um, I'll, I'll let uh, Alan tell sort of his side in a minute, but ultimately I found my way to Alan because I needed help developing a research method for looking at this very complex question of how do we evaluate uh, physicians at this uh, very kind of abstract um, skill, which is taking into account the life context of patients when uh, planning their care. And so I I also got here in 1997. Um, I came from um, Berkeley, where I was a cognitive psychologist, 
yeah, still a cognitive psychologist, um, and uh, interested in um, human judgment decision-making, and in particular, um, interested in uh, medical decisions. Um, I knew that I, I really enjoyed the experimental method, but I didn't want to spend my life in a lab um, putting people in front of computers and making them do you know, repetitive tasks. I wanted to get out into uh, some decisions that I thought were more consequential and important. So uh, I came here um, to work in medical decision-making. And actually, when, uh, when I think when Saul and I met, I was teaching evidence-based medicine um, in pediatrics, um, trying to, uh, to both help um, physicians in training get better at understanding the research literature that might give them some guidelines uh, for what they should do with patients on average, um, and, uh, and also studying the way that um, physicians uh, change their minds about treatments based on the evidence that they saw in the research literature. Um, so the other side of that, of course, is, well, what if the patient isn't like the average? And, and that's really, uh, I think, in many ways, the question that Saul uh, came to um, and that really got us working together. Mm-hmm. There was one uh, really memorable patient that stood out for me early on that I ended up writing about that I think kind of captures what it is that we're trying to talk about here. Um, I was working in the uh, preoperative testing clinic, which is where patients are sent before they go to surgery. And I was supervising that clinic, and uh, residents would see the patient who would come to talk to me. And there was this uh, woman who'd come in, and uh, she was being prepped for bariatric surgery, for weight loss surgery. And uh, the, uh, the resident came back and said, you know, Mrs. So-and-so is here for a preoperative bariatric surgery evaluation. Um, she's uh, basically in pretty good health. Uh, she's uh, not been successful losing weight using conservative measures. Uh, she was seen in uh, the over- obesity clinic for a while, weight loss clinic, and referred to surgery because she had developed hypertension and hyperlipidemia, which are complications of her obesity. So she meets all of the evidence-based criteria for being appropriate for this surgery, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, we did her EKG, looks fine. Um, you know, she, in fact, she's looking forward to having the surgery because um, she's, you know, she thinks she'll be able to, you know, take better care of an ill son, and um, so I think that uh, she's basically, um, you know, all prepped and ready to go. I think we can say that she's cleared for surgery. So um, I heard all this, and, you know, again, all the evidence-based stuff sounded good, um, met the criteria, had not been successful with other more conservative measures. So I said, well, what's wrong with the son? You know, what, what, what's this about her son who's ill? And the residents said, looked at me, and was like, well, I, I don't know. Like, you know, why are we talking about the son? The son's not our patient. Um, so I was like, well, I don't know. I was just curious. So we walked in there. And I think what struck me is that it just seemed like an unusual comment for a patient to make. And you know, I'm looking forward to taking better care of my son. Usually people just don't disclose things like that. So I asked her about it, and it turned out that her son had um, muscular dystrophy uh, and um, was in his early 20s. He was at a very advanced stage. Uh, she basically had to care for everything. She had to lift him and bathe him, and um, she was pretty much his life support. Um and she had this idea that if she became, lost weight, she'd be better able to do that. But what she really hadn't taken into account is that if she had the surgery, she wouldn't be able to do anything or any weightlifting, like lifting her son, for about 40 days. Um, and if she tried to do it, she would be a risk of wound dehiscence, tearing open the wound in her abdomen. And so she'd been so focused on the positives of the surgery that she hadn't really thought about you know, the, the long-term consequences. I'm not, I mean, the, the intermediate consequences, the issue of, of not being able to do what was so important to her. Um, so I asked her if she had any, anyone who could help with her son, and it turned out that she had a young daughter who was about 12 who also really depended on her, and a husband who was an alcoholic um, and kind of abusive. Um, she hadn't thrown him out because he brought in basically a disability check. 
And so she was kind of holding the family together. Um, and what became clear from this conversation is that this was absolutely the wrong time for her to have surgery. Um, that if she went and had surgery, it would be um, a disaster for her. And quite frankly, her prefer- major reason for having the surgery, which was to take care of her son, would not be realized. Um, and so um, she ended up saying, no, actually, I don't want the surgery, when she realized it. And I sort of joked about the fact later that she you know, failed preoperative assessment on psychosocial grounds, which is you know, really pretty much what happened. And so when Alan and I started to talk about this case, we realized that if you put this into a conceptual framework, there are really four kinds of information that should go into every medical decision. Uh, one of them is what we call the, the, um, the sort of the, the, the clinical, con- the, I guess you'd call it the, um, the clinical presentation. So what are the biomedical issues in this patient? It's like that they have obesity, they have um, comorbidities like hypertension and hyperlipidemia, all of these me- biomedical things that, that we talk about. That's sort of the clinical presentation. Then there's uh, the research evidence, which is what, is the, what, are the, what, what are the guidelines for this? Well, the guidelines are yes, yes, you should go um, uh, to surgery if you're developing complications and other methods have failed. All that's clear. But there's two more types of information you need. One is you need to know um, what are the patient's, um, con- what's the patient's preferences if there are choices in therapy. And obviously a preference um, is something that a person can only decide for themselves. So if there are different options for treatment and they have different risks and benefits, only the patient can decide. So they call it preferences. And the fourth one is context. What's going on in that person's life that um, could be relevant to um, uh, dis- determining whether, in fact, those preferences will be realized? So in this particular case, the, the, the medical the resident had done a great job of picking up on the research uh, evidence for the clinical presentation, but that was it. They hadn't looked at these other types of information, which is what is the context and what is the infor- and what are the preferences. And so our work has really been about studying whether physicians are picking up on these contextual issues when they really matter, and that is kind of the framework for what we've been doing. Mm-hmm. So speaking of context and playing on some of what both of you have just said, in the introduction to the book, you frame uh, the work being done as part of a trajectory toward the improvement of quality of healthcare that was kind of two-pronged in a way. And one of the, one of these prongs is based in evidence-based medicine, which both of you have uh, brought up, and the other is in sort of drives to humanize medicine. And I was wondering if um, both or either of you could give a little more context for our listeners who are sort of less familiar with the climate of American medicine in the 1980s and on. Uh, So how would you define evidence-based medicine? Uh, How has it unfolded and how has it affected uh, practice in hospitals and in medical education? And then where do you see, what are some sort of um, standouts of humanistic uh, medicine endeavors, some kind of touchstones of that? I'll take the evidence-based medicine one, and then I'll give you the other one. Uh, so there were there were um, studies that came out in the, in the early '80s that pointed out substantial variation in the way people got taken care of, um, and it didn't look like this really had anything to do with the with the patients. So um, patients who were similar were getting treated very differently depending on where you were in the country or even where you were in the city. Um, so if you are in a clinical situation where there's a right thing to do or a more right thing to do, and people are getting different things, that's a problem. Some people are not getting what they ought to be getting. So the kind of evidence-based medicine um, educational movement, uh, which um, you know really came um, a lot out of uh, the UK, Canada, and then some centers in the United States, um, 
was about teaching physicians how to read the research literature so they could understand for themselves like, what is the current state of the art of practice for a particular condition. So teaching physicians how to ask questions uh, about their patients and then to go and search in the medical literature to understand enough about study design and statistics that they could read those studies and they could draw a conclusion and presumably that would be the conclusion that any physician facing a patient like this with a question like that would draw. So it was really a move towards standardization of care in a lot of ways and, and standardizing it on the most, um, as they say, evidence-based, the most up-to-date um, research around that particular problem. So that was a big, uh, was introduced in a big way into medical education in the 80s. Um, at the time, it was an innovation. Now it's, it's sort of the standard practice. Every medical school teaches every medical student um, and every resident about evidence-based practice. They're supposed to learn how to look at the literature uh, and how to understand um, some, of that, some of that primary research. Um, of course, as, as um, we mentioned earlier, no patient is really the average patient in a research study, right? And research studies don't investigate the individual contextual differences in patients. Yeah, and I think to take that sort of to the second part of your question about humanism, uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk in the last 20 or so years about making medicine more humanistic, about um, physicians needing to be more empathic. Uh, and I think the challenge, of course, is assessing whether that's actually happening um, and being clear about what you mean when you use those words. Um, our approach has been quite pragmatic. Um, as we see it, uh, what patients want uh, are really two things. One is they want to know that their doctor has got the science right. Uh, we can call that evidence-based practice. But what they also need is that that care plan is ultimately appropriate for them. And in order for it to be appropriate for them, we get to those two additional types of information I was talking about that are often missing. One is it has to be mindful of their preferences. It has to be um, respectful of their personal choices about the kind of risks and benefits they want to take, you know, surgery versus waiting, um, uh, whatever the choice is, um, uh, medication versus observation. Uh, so that's one part. And the other is it needs to be attentive to their life context, um, and, you know, and that's um, those are actually measurable. So, But to measure them, we had to really develop some new techniques. And one of the things that became clear when Anal and I were talking about this over 10 years ago was that the only way to really assess whether physicians are picking up on these contextual factors is to be a fly on the wall during a visit. Um, and there were really only two ways of doing it. The first was sending in fake patients um, who were trained to essentially say the same thing over and over again um, and drop the same clues that they're having life challenges and see what happens and have them carrying concealed audio recorders. That's what we call the unannounced standardized patient. It's basically like a mystery shopper who's trained to do the same thing over and over again and to collect very specific data and to record what happens. So we ended up um, uh, getting grant, uh, grant money and hiring a team of actors who became undercover patients. And we sent them into lots and lots of practices. So for instance, we could send a an actor into 50 practices and he would do the same thing. He would come in and he would say he's got a history of asthma, it's been getting worse. Um, he, at a particular point he would say, oh and doc, it's been tough since I've lost my job. Um, and then when he was asked what medicine he was taking, he would uh, give the name of a really expensive brand name inhaler when there are a lot of cheaper generics you could be using. And we'd listen to see what happens. So the doctor who's attentive 
would say, wow, you know, I'm, uh, what's going on with your losing your job? Are you having trouble paying for your meds? Have you lost your health insurance? And the actor would say, yeah. And the doctor would hopefully look and see that he was on an unnecessary, expensive, brand-name drug and say, well, we can fix that. We'll just put you on a cheap generic. How's that? You know, and the patient would be like, that's terrific. Okay. Believe it or not, that happens less than a quarter of the time. And we know that because we listen. Um, and we've been listening to, at this point, thousands of visits. Um, and so what unfortunately happens um, are the following. One is the patient will say, you know, boy, it's been tough since I lost my job. And the, um, the doctor might say, yeah, you know, um, it's, uh, it's been a really tough economy. I'm sorry to hear that. Do you have any allergies? Like they would be sort of sympathetic. They'd say something kind of nice. But then they would just plunge, you know, just like plunge right. ahead. <laughs> and, um, and I think that, um, you know, that's like very narrow blinders. They have this very biomedical, like, focus. And they just think that, oh, that's just like a sad little thing he told me. I should just say something nice and move on. Whereas some doctors recognize, oh my goodness, that's data. Like they just told me something that's equivalent to my abdomen's hurting, um, or you know I can't see straight. It's like that's it's information, they, and then they, then they will pursue it. They'll ask questions about it. So it's interesting that some physicians have a wider angle lens on. And if you think about it, context is nothing more than like opening up the lens, right? So you're no longer just looking narrowly at this biomedical stuff, and you're opening up the lens. And and the goal is that your patient will walk out with a care plan that's actually customized to them. So we use this method of sending in fake patients uh, to gather a ton of data on what we ended up calling contextual error. So a contextual error is a kind of error um, that um, describes this phenomenon of getting the science right but the care plan wrong. Um, and what's interesting about contextual errors is they're invisible uh, unless you're there observing them happening. Um, because if you look at the medical record, which is the way most quality of care is done, it always looks internally consistent because if the doctor missed the significance of something the patient said, it won't be in the chart. The doctor isn't going to say, oh, I'm, they're not going to write, oh, I missed the fact that he said he has um, has lost his job. They're just going to say, oh, patient came in, their asthma's been getting worse, um, I added a new medicine, you know, and I ordered the following tests. Okay, and it's going to look terrific. If anyone audits, it looks terrific. But in fact, it's lousy care. Um, and so um, what we discovered after doing a lot of this is a couple things. First of all, this problem is common. Two, it's totally not being detected because no one's listening in on visits. Um, three, um, we ended up looking at the costs. And so we found out that when doctors um, basically um, miss this stuff, they tend to order lots of tests because they don't really know what's going on. Um, and we did that because the way we did that is we basically let these doctors order labs and, and, and put in other orders before we told them they'd seen a fake patient. So we would only tell them that, tell them they saw a fake patient after they had already put in the orders. Mm -hmm. um, and that way, um, we knew what they would have done had it been a real patient. And we found that when they missed the context, when they made these contextual errors, um, they ordered a lot of unnecessary tests. So, it drives, so we can tell you that contextual errors cost um, a lot. They're expensive. Um, and then later, we did a project where we trained, um, we invited um, almost a 1,000 real patients to carry concealed audio recorders into their visits, which I don't think has been done. Mm -hmm. um, and... Um, and again, that opened up a whole window of insight, which we can talk about as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I want to I want to hear more about um, what some of these examples of contextual errors are, because the book is you know full of very, very uh, rich descriptions of patient histories and kind of really gets you into that process of clinical reasoning. Yeah. But so one interesting case that you discussed uh, related to this uh, idea of a fundamental attribution error, where something that is uh, a something that is construed as kind of a personality defect or this, some kind of undesirable um, 
you know, uh, substrate of an interaction as opposed to something that is fundamental information about the patient's case. So something that would otherwise be written off as personality is actually, you know, really the crux of the case. So could you go into some of these, the, the nature of some of these kinds of errors? Yeah, I mean, we see that all the time when it comes to um, medication adherence, for mm-hmm, example. Mm-hmm. So if I forget to take one of my daily meds, I know that it's because I was out late and I forgot about it or there was something went on in my life and it was kind of stressful and it didn't happen and, you know, I'll try to do better. Um, if I go to some physicians and they discover that I forgot to take a, a daily med, um, their feeling is, well, so this is a patient who's not adherent with medication, right? It's, it's right. some kind of essence about me um, that I'm no good at, at taking meds on time, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so patients get these labels, right, not adherent or non-compliant, um, that kind of follow them around. Um, and it may be that, that those labels themselves prevent the physician from really looking into, well, what's going on? What is the context? Why is it that it's difficult for you to take those meds that way? Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that uh, it's interesting. Once When we make assumptions about people, we stop being curious and we stop asking questions because we think we know the answer. Oh, yeah, the reason he doesn't take his medication is because he just doesn't care. He's not He's not concerned about his health. Um, he, uh, he doesn't understand that it's a priority. And I'll just lecture him. I'll tell him he needs to do better, okay? When, in fact, if instead you said, Mr. Jones, I've noticed that you're... Um, uh, diabetes control has been getting worse and worse. Like, it used to do a great job. Your, what we call the hemoglobin A1C used to be really normal, and now it's going way up. Your sugars are way out of control. You know, what's going on? Okay, then you will learn why that patient is struggling. And what you find will be variable, but it could be something very significant that you could fix. Um, you know, I had a truck driver who um, actually had He became a truck driver, and his insulin was freezing. Um, and so he wasn't taking his insulin. Um, I've had um, patients who are working the night shift, um, and so they can't um, take their medication at the right time. And I mean, just the list goes on and on and on. Yeah. And we actually um, made a list once of 54 answers patients give that are all different from each other when you ask them why they're not taking their medication. And none of they also they surprise physicians because physicians are just labeling them as non-compliant. And what's fascinating is most of these are fixable. Right. Um, and so I think the fundamental attribution error is unfortunately at the root of a lot of judgmentalism. Um, it, it leads us to judge others, and when we judge others, we stop asking questions, and then we no longer get them the care they need. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so speaking of asking questions and investigating these kinds of things, I'm interested in uh, unpacking a bit more the process um, of uh creating, I guess, the scripts for these unannounced standard patients, um, and also what it was like to, you know, try to, where did you guys derive influence um, to use that model to assess this problem? Uh, Because it's really, it's an interesting approach. (laughs) Yeah, one of the things that that is really convenient is that um, all medical schools now have a stable of standardized patients Mm -hmm. that they use uh, primarily to teach sort of the art of doctoring kind of stuff to assess communication skills. So medical students uh, will go and they'll examine uh, a standardized patient in a, in a kind of lab room, and um, the patient will play the case, and at the end of the case, the patient usually gives feedback to the student. Um, you know, this is how you spoke to me, and how I felt about it, and how it went, and so on. Um, and this has become a very 
uh, common in medical education, both for instruction and for assessment. It's used in, in major exams. So there was already a stable of actors, right? <laughs> People who knew how to um, pretty convincingly portray patients with a variety of different kinds of conditions. So that that really was a kind of a, a, the genesis of the idea that well, what if what if these people could do this in a way that the provider examining them didn't know right. that they were seeing an actor? Right? <laughs> um, so uh, in terms of how we actually developed the cases, I think most of those came from the observations you yeah, made of what was going on yeah, with residents. Absolutely, basically just keeping a diary on real cases and yeah. saying, well, we can train an actor to portray these. Um, so you know, the example I gave you is just one of many. Um, and so, you know, we had, for example, I remember when I was, um, I take care of patients in the hospital as well as on the wards, I'm in the clinic, and I remember um, one day, the way it works here is you go on, uh, you go on service at the beginning of every month. So you're on service as an attending for 30 days, and you supervise a team of residents and medical students. So it was my day to come on service, which means you inherit all the patients of the doctor who's going off service. And one of my patients was an elderly gentleman who was being uh, worked up, evaluated for unexplained weight loss. And typically, if you've got somebody in their 70s who's losing weight, um, you worry about cancer, um, unexplained weight loss. It's kind of a buzzword in medicine. And that means, boy, you better go looking. You better do a CT scan and a colonoscopy and whatever, all these different tests. Find out what is it, colon cancer, breast, well, why aren't this person losing weight? Okay. So I inherited this guy. He'd been on the ward for several days getting a bunch of tests. And I started chatting with him. And it didn't take long to, to, to learn uh, that um, he was um, kind of borderline homeless. He'd been sleeping in somebody's basement, and uh, basically he was uh, hungry. Um, he, he had been uh, having a hard time going to shelters. He didn't feel safe there. He was concerned about being beat up. He wasn't getting uh, basically a square meal um, only a few times a week. And the reason this guy was losing weight was because he was starving. Um, and so obviously working him up for a bunch of cancers was just a huge waste of time. Um, very expensive and a completely a contextual error. Um, now, if you just looked at the chart, it looked totally appropriate. You know, 73-year-old gentleman comes in with unexplained weight loss, blah, blah, blah. You know, differential diagnosis includes colon cancer, whatever, et cetera. So it all looked good on paper. If it was audited, it would fly through. Utilization review would fly through. But if you knew what was going on, you'd be like, this is crazy. Yeah. So, um, so what do we do? We trained an actor who was in his 70s um, to go to practices and give four clues that he was homeless and say he was losing weight and see what happens. And again, more than half the time, he walked out, and we, the doctor put in orders for all kinds of malignancy workup. And, um, and then you had to quickly intervene and, and quickly say, <laughs> cancel them because fake, 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 exactly, yeah. Now, in most right. of the in in a, in a minority of cases, the doctor would um, find figure out, you know, the guy was homeless. I mean, he would pick up on the clues when the patient, you know, uh, first of all, the patient would dress like he was kind of on the margins, and and uh, so um, we basically would. In those, I mean, in those cases, um, that I would say, I don't know. Often there would be like Meals on Wheels or a social work consult or something very inexpensive and direct. Um, and so what we did is we based our cases that we trained actors in, on, on these real cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so in the book you guys describe one of the, the limitations of this approach is almost, you know, it's scientificity, right? You have a clearly defined set of scripts that you're having actors go yes. out and so you can... Um, you know, you can sort of compare uh, across responses mm-hmm. what different physicians' uh, reactions are. Um, so, what were some of the unique difficulties of actually implementing this with real patients? So, um, 
first of all, no one had ever done it before. Um, people had used unannounced standardized patients before. Um, it's, by the way, which is still kind of tricky because you've got to create, like, fake insurance and a fake medical <laughs> record. And, yeah. um, and essentially, you know, it's it's pretty tricky. You've got to get the practice to agree to it. And that's a long – we write about that in the book. Right, right. Um, Unearthing old Social Security numbers. All and, that kind of yeah. stuff, yes. So we had to wrestle with that. We weren't the first people to do it. I think ours is the largest study that's been done, but it was not the first. Mm-hmm. Whereas um, essentially inviting uh, real patients to carry concealed audio recorders into their visits, no one else has still done. I mean, we, I think we're still the first to do that. Um, but uh, the challenges there uh, are, um, okay, so first um, you need to make sure that um, that everyone is comfortable with the plan. Um, so, you know, the patients have to feel like if they're going to record their visit, that that data is going to be very, very secure. It's not going to get into the wrong hands because they're talking about personal stuff. They mm-hmm. feel totally comfortable with it. Um, uh, the doctors have to understand that the data will never be used against them. It's, it's entirely for um, research or, and as, as you know, later we actually use it for quality improvement. Um, and then at a conceptual or methodological level, um, there's one big difference, which is that with fake patients, we know what they're going to say, and we know how to um, evaluate the physician based on their response to what the patient says. It's like it's like a it's a it's an experiment. Um, whereas with real patients, we have no idea what they're going to say. We don't even know if they're going to be contextual issues. So we had to develop a coding system for listening to audio recordings where we could, um, with a high degree of um, inter-rater reliability, which means different people would come to the same conclusion listening to the same audio recording, um, uh, essentially determine whether the doctor had picked up on these contextual issues and addressed them. And so we kind of had to develop a schema for uh, for tracking that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this was a, a highly collaborative process, and you guys describe the uh, kind of non-traditional actors in medical research that you brought on board to actually engage in this. So, yeah, I'd be interested to hear more about what are some of the factors that you look for when coding, and what you know, what was the kind of process that went into generating what you guys call in the book 4C or as I have it here, context coding for contextualization of care. It's close. Con- content, content coding. 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 Content coding. I always do that. Um, I'm leaping straight to context. Yeah. So. <laughs> right. Sure. Well, and, and that's important because a lot of the um, systems and approaches that have been used to, to look at recorded visits, you know, um, not usually covertly recorded visits, but overtly recorded visits, have not focused on what the actual medical conversation is. They focused on communication behaviors, like is the physician nodding and saying yes and Mm -hmm. uh, summarizing and things like that. Um, So we realized that in order to to study what we wanted to study, the ability to to pick up on context and appropriately plan care, you you had to go beyond just looking at what are the kind of... um, a contextual, if you like, they have the non-medical communications behaviors that are involved, and look at the actual content of the conversation. So, we look to see our, our coders when they're listening to the uh, recordings. Look to see, did the patient say something that we call a red flag that makes you think that maybe there is something else going on here beyond the the medical case that's being presented? Something like, it's been tough since I lost my job. If uh, the patient drops a contextual red flag, then we expect the physician to do something about that. So our coders try to come up with, well, what, what ought the physician to ask at this point? What would be a, an ideal probe uh, to find out if there really is something behind that red flag? And they listen to see if the physician does something more or less like that contextual probe. Mm-hmm. If they do, 
then maybe the patient reveals that there is a contextual factor in the case. So yes, I've lost my job and now I can't afford my meds. Or maybe the patient reveals that that, that red flag doesn't actually signal a contextual factor that's relevant to this problem. I've lost my job, but my wife still has hers and I'm on her insurance. Mm -hmm. uh, so is there a contextual factor then that's identified as a result uh, of this probe or because the patient just comes out and, and says, you know, without prompting, I now I don't have insurance and I can't afford this medication. Once we know that there's a contextual factor, then we can ask, so what did the physician do about it? And again, our coders come up with some ideas, some models of what would be an appropriate care plan that would take that context into account. Um, and they listen to see if the physician actually implements a plan like that. In some cases where in, in many of our studies, we get the physician's note afterwards as well. So we can see whether they actually ordered a plan that would incorporate that kind of context. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you think about it, what Alan just walked through has a fair amount of jargon in it, and because we needed the jargon in order to code for specific things, but it really boils down to something very, very simple that people do all the time, which is if somebody says something that's a tip-off, that there's an issue, um, it could be you're with a friend and, and they just drop a comment and you're like, whoa, what was that? Okay, that's the clue. Um, you ask about it, that's the probe. They tell you something that you didn't know that's very significant that um, you need to do something about. That's the factor. And then you say, oh gosh, I think I can help you with that. That's the contextualized care plan. So really, all we're doing is saying there's those four steps. And we listen for them on an audio recording and we found that um, we can uh, reach a high degree of inter-rater reliability. Different people will listen to the same audio recording and come to the same conclusions. But what's really interesting is we've discovered that we can then code each visit as either it was contextualized or there was a contextual error, okay? And we can then uh, actually track those, the patients who were at those visits for up to nine months. And what we found is that in those visits where the care plan was contextualized, that patient is more likely to do better. Um, so what we can tell you is that contextualizing care actually predicts healthcare outcomes, which is stunning. Mm -hmm. and, what, um, and, and again, if you actually dig down into it, it's also obvious. So for instance, if we go back to the example I gave of, boy, it's been tough since I've lost my job, if you send that guy out on a higher dose of medication he's already not able to afford, he's not going to get better. On the other hand, if you switch him to a cheap generic, he's probably going to get better. Okay. So when you break it down to individual um, cases, it makes perfect sense. But we've just shown that it's true. You know, you make a mistake, you're going to spend money and people aren't going to get better. And the problem with contextual errors is, until now, no one knew that those mistakes were being made. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so in analyzing all this data you, uh, you amassed, I, th I believe in the fifth chapter, you begin to talk about characterizing what some of these successful behaviors might look like. And so just, I guess, two points on that. Uh, so one... What are some of those, uh, what are some kind of successful strategies that physicians who are good contextualizers employ? And then two, what is this, what is this schema trying to get at? You both, uh, what you write about in the book is describing how what you're interested in primarily in uh, establishing the framework is sort of a minimum threshold for what competency of evaluating context is, that obviously every trained physician should aim to achieve higher than. But why not go for you know prescribing what ideal behaviors might look like in place of that? Do you want to talk a little bit about the factors? Well, I could take this. Oh, I was going to take the second question first. <laughs> um, I think the reason for not... Um, 
for not sort of setting a very high bar is that um, if no one <laughs> achieves that high bar, and, and based on our data, very, very few people would, um, you know, you, you don't have a lot to go with. You're telling a whole bunch of people, well, you're not up to snuff. Whereas if you have the, the lower bar, then we're certainly identifying the people below that who really need some help. And the people above that, yes, they can get better. And um, I'm sure later we'll talk about our, our QI project where we've been helping everyone try to get better on an ongoing basis. But mm-hmm. um, but you want it to really be unquestionable that this person who misses this bar is making mistakes that are serious mistakes. I don't want there to be any quibbles about that. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I think we, we have a, a lower bar. We want to give the benefit of the doubt um, in many ways to uh, to the physician um, because you know there are a lot of there are a lot of things that, that go on that we don't measure and. Um, we want to be sure if we say, you know, this is a problem that we really have got a problem. That probably means there are plenty of problems that we're not identifying. Mm-hmm. I think when you're um, opening up a new field, as I think we have, which is just looking at this whole new phenomenon that people just have not been able to detect because they haven't been measuring it, um, you need to start with low-hanging fruit. So when people look at our data, um, it's very hard for them to dismiss it because we're very generous um, in evaluating <laughs> physician performance. So when we say there was a contextual error, you provided inappropriate care, and we give the example, people are like, yeah, 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 it's true. And even when we use this very generous measure, we're still finding that more than half the time, patients who have contextual issues are walking out with the wrong care plan. So um, it's a huge problem. And it's not being measured. And I think one of the reasons it's not being measured is that nobody's observing care. You know, and one of the things I think is fascinating is that we're spending $3 trillion in this country right now on health care. No one's observing it, literally. Um, so where else does that happen? Um, and, uh, you know, so right now we're, care is being evaluated by proxy. It's like what some doc writes in the chart, what some insurance person puts in claims data. What actually happens during the visit Um, where there is huge variation. I mean, Dr. A may be extremely adept at making sure their patients walk out with the right personalized, contextualized care plan, and and Dr. B is completely terrible at it. Their medical records will look exactly the same if they're both following guidelines, okay? Mm -hmm. In fact, Dr. B may look better because he's always following guidelines, even when they don't apply, okay? (laughs) So so I think that um, we believe that it's time to start observing healthcare. People get skeptical about that. They're like, well, that doesn't really seem scalable, but it's interesting. First of all, in retail, we send secret shoppers into hotels and uh, department stores, so um, the stakes are a lot lower, right? So to start collecting this data in healthcare is absolutely feasible, particularly given that there is more than one way you can do it. If you send in actors like mystery patients, there's a cost, or mystery shoppers. It's clearly, if if the cost isn't too high, to make department stores work well. I don't think it's too high to um, uh, fix healthcare. Um, uh, but even if you're worried about that, uh, we found that um, a lot of patients are very comfortable audio recording their visits, mm-hmm. and uh, that doesn't cost anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. So do you think that there are, um, in sort of assessing doctors who do this well, 
are there any kinds of um, ideal behaviors? Is there a typology of this person is really, really good at just... And, and you, you guys map this out, I think, quite mm-hmm. nicely. But there are, there are some people who tend to be really generous listeners. Sometimes they'll be along one spectrum where they listen too much and don't maybe uh, recommend or prescribe mm-hmm. enough. Um, then you have also people who will come into a scenario with sort of a razor-sharp uh, perception of what a potential issue might be before they listen. So you kind of have these different spectra that you outline instead in place of having, say, ideal character types of, you know, the listener, the um, the lecturer, right? Yeah, and we've talked about, uh, we've already talked about some of these. For example, um, is, is the doc following a kind of prescribed checklist in their mind and they're not going to deviate from that checklist? And then mm-hmm. even when you say... I've lost my job. They're asking about allergies, right? Because that's the right. next thing on the list, right? And and um, because of the way um, a lot of medical education works, um, you know, medical students and residents are trained to present in a particular order and to ask questions in a particular way. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, these are useful mnemonics when you're learning how to take a history or present a history. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually you want somebody to get away from that checklist and have some more flexibility and you know, really attend to the patient and what the patient's saying. So we've we've talked about that a little bit. One that we haven't discussed um, that I think is really important is um, the place of the electronic medical record. That's mm-hmm. the computer in the room, <laughs> uh, or as, as Saul um, I think likes to say, the doctor-computer relationship, which in some cases takes over <laughs> the doctor-patient relationship. Mm-hmm. If you've got a, a doctor who's really focused on their entry into the medical record. That this is very hard to be attentive to a patient and attentive to all of the, the prompts and the text entry fields in, in the EMR at the same time. Um, and we can hear this from the from the recordings when we hear the clicking going on and, mm-hmm. and the physician has to ask a question a second time because they didn't really hear the answer the first time. Um, you know, that's a that's a serious problem in the encounter. Imagine if you were trying to do this interview um, while also having to do a ton of data entry. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, the interview would um, uh, would not go very well. Uh, certainly you'd have a hard time following us, um, and particularly if the data entry was highly directive. It says, you know, you need to get the following 15 pieces of information from us, whether we feel like telling you or offer it or not. Mm-hmm. So we want to tell you our story, and you're trying to feed the computer a bunch of information, and you know that ultimately you're going to be evaluated based on how well you entered that data in the computer, not based on how well you addressed our needs. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how healthcare is working right now. And, um, and so what are doctors doing? They're doing a terrific job uh, under the circumstances making everything look good in the computer. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously that isn't patient-centered, right? It's not centered on the patient. It's centered on the computer in the literal sense. Now, one of the things that's interesting is we found that when we compared these visits with the fake patients where uh, the doc had either overlooked the contextual red flag or had done a great job of picking up on it. So if we go back to our earlier example, um, the physician identified that the patient was on an expensive brand name drug and switched some true generic versus they didn't and they overlooked it. What's fascinating is when we compared those two outcomes, on average, the visit length was the same. And that completely surprised us because we assumed that to contextualize care would take longer, that the physician, and actually whenever we talked about our work before that to physicians, 
they would say, well, what you're trying to do is all nice and dandy, but we don't really have time for that. We only have 20 minutes for a visit or 15 minutes for a visit. You know, it's, we're just trying to get the biomedical right. But in fact, it isn't, doesn't really work that way because it's not that you do the biomedical first and then if there's time, you do the contextual. It's actually that you're beginning the exam with a wider angle lens. So when the patient says, boy, it's been tough since I've lost my job, you're jumping on that. And then you discover that the patient just needs to be switched to a cheaper generic, and then you're done. And the person walks out with the right care, and it didn't take any longer. In fact, if you miss that, and you go down the biomedical pathway, and you're trying to figure out what medicines to add and what test to order, mm-hmm. that's time-consuming, too. And so this, um, this claim that we can't contextualize care because we don't have time uh, is a misconception. Mm-hmm. And did you guys, in your framework, actually code for any of these structural factors, say, you know, overly attentive to computer and data entry or you know, overly um, stuck to one's checklist. Because actually, the, the checklist thing is interesting because that, I think, touches on uh, bigger conversations about you know, medicine and society and risk mitigation. I think uh, Wanda's book has uh, attracted a lot of attention. And in a way, what your, what your framework does is while accommodating um, and trying to systematize uh, the collection of this information, it does push against what seem to be um, what seems to be a more of an attempt at routinization or, op- or operationalization. So, have you guys met with resistance in describing this, uh, the results of your work, and the potential implementations in um, hospital practice? I think uh, you, um, I'm trying to. You asked a few different questions. I'm trying to figure out what to what to hone in on. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, uh, what, what would you like me to focus on? I'd say let's focus on the actual implementation in the hospital. Yeah, of this approach? Yeah. Well, so right now we have moved into a, a very exciting quality improvement process. Uh, everything we've been talking about up to now has been research. But because the data has been so compelling, um, one of my major kind of Work homes has been the Veterans Administration, the VA hospital system. They've funded um, a lot of this work, in fact, most of it. And um, so the VA is all about applying research to practice. It's all about trying to find better ways to help veterans. And because we have so much evidence that this problem is common, uh, it became, uh, we moved it into the, uh, from research into quality improvement. So we went through a process of um, uh, starting this up at several hospitals where basically physicians couldn't opt out. Uh, and mm-hmm. um, and which you, they can in research. And we would invite patients to volunteer to carry audio recorders in the visits on a routine basis. We'd collect those audio recorders. We would um, code them using 4C. Um, and then when we, we would generate reports based on uh, the contextual errors and also the great contextualized care, both the, the positive and the negative, in little reports that we were highly structured. They provided both quantitative data on the performance of physicians, the, the rate at which they contextualize care, as well as examples of where they don't and where they do. And we would provide those reports and feed them back to the care teams. And um, the goal was uh, to see if we could improve their performance by simply holding a mirror up to them. If you think about what you're doing is when you, when you secretly audio record visits and you code performance and then you give it back to the people who you've just um, um, audio recorded, it's like holding a mirror up to them. And it's just saying, this is what, you, this is what you're doing, both good and bad, and giving them an opportunity to um, build on their strengths and correct their weaknesses. And this whole approach of audit and feedback, as it's called, is considered um, one of the better approaches to changing how professionals perform. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, to give you an example, um, a not very effective approach is just taking them into a classroom and giving them a lecture. 
saying, you know, this is the problem that people make because they're all like, well, that's not me. I don't do that. Right, right. Um, and uh, so, but this is like, this is what you look like. Okay, it's a mirror. And so we have, we did that for about three years. Um, and <clears throat> there are lots of challenges. Um, there is, first of all, again, the same issue of, uh, physicians needing to trust it. We need to make sure, in this case, we had to make sure that the unions were on board because, you know, they represent uh, the workers. Um, by the way, uh, uh, we ended up adding on uh, pharmacists, uh, audio recording mm-hmm. them as well, and then ultimately nurses and then even clerks. We started interviewing audio recording clerks or having our patients audio record them. And so we started providing feedback to everybody. Um, and um, uh, and it it's a complex process. Um, what I found is that once people trust you, um, you are um, you're going to be successful, but mm-hmm. that's probably the biggest challenge. People realizing that you know um, being secretly audio recorded um, has to come with a lot of protection. That this isn't going to go to their bosses, their names are going to be removed, um, and right. that this tr- is truly for professional development. Right, right. Because what it so- what it sounds like is being described as something that could potentially shade into being. Um, a managerial technology that many would, you know, resist, and it could be seen as, you know, a tool of bureaucracy. Whereas I think what you're both intending right. is that this is just a tool for yeah. reflection. Fortunately, there is already a very deep uh, tradition and a legalized process in healthcare called peer review, mm-hmm. um, and so protected peer review is present in every hospital. Typically, it's more traditional, which is as I'm, I'm a physician in, in a local hospital here, and I'm routinely asked to um, audit the charts of uh, my peers and they routinely audit my charts and um, it's done every six months and then um, we actually go through it and we're supposed to be very objective if we think there are problems we notate them and the way the system works is it's um, protected from subpoena it can't go to court um, and it can't go to um, it doesn't go to the administration it's entirely for performance improvement um, unless they discover some egregious you know negligence um, and so so we basically put it into that legal um, bucket uh, so we say this is essentially protected peer review. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's much more like um, pitcher being videotaped and watching their tapes to <laughs> you know improve their pitch than it is mm-hmm. like Watergate. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that's a great distinction. <laughs> that's excellent. And I think another one of the potential implementations of this that um, you discussed toward the end of the book is in medical education. And so uh, I was I was particularly struck, as I'm sure others who have read the book have been, by the results that you uh, that you got when comparing uh, medical students responding to the unannounced standardized patients versus the physicians uh, that you had deployed them to, and how the rate of um, the medical students was higher actually than uh, I think in both cases the ones who were trained in your workshops on respecting context and those who were not their rate of uh, context appreciation was higher than those of physicians now we both of you point out that that's a contextual uh, situation students are performing up to a certain standard but what were some other interesting things that you observed in uh, trying to implement this in medical schools yeah in, in that case the students knew they were seeing standardized patients. And that was really, in many ways, the big difference. Right. Um, and what that said to us is, you know, just doing an, an educational intervention, it was a good educational intervention. It was a nice series of workshops, and it, it did indeed make the students who learned about and had opportunities to practice contextualizing care, they, they were more competent at it when they were facing these uh, standardized patients, you know. But the moment you take it out of the training environment out of the out of the classroom, like our attending physicians seeing unannounced standardized patients in their office, you realize that 
competence is one thing, and actual real world performance is a whole other bar. Mm-hmm. And you know we care about real world performance, <laughs> um, so that was that was one of the reasons why we moved to audit and feedback, um, the approach that Saul discussed, because that that really looked like it had the opportunity to change not just competence, what you can do, but performance, what you actually do. Mm-hmm. It's a very important and interesting distinction. Uh, what I'd like to call the skills performance gap, which mm-hmm. is um, a skill is what you can do when you know you're being tested. And performance is what you actually do when you are, don't think anyone's paying attention, right? So um, we were able to show that uh, when medical students or residents uh, think know they're being tested and they're in a lab with a fake patient and they've been trained to contextualize care, they do a good job. But when we sneak patients into their practices who are um, uh, either real patients or uh, carrying raw audio recorders uh, or, or, or fake patients... Um, they um, they fall back to their old ways, um, and and I think that's just show, it's you know it's the, like the Hawthorne effect, right? It's when people know they're being tested, and so that's why we believe that um, if you really want to assess this critical part of performance, performance which meaning what people really do in practice, um, you have to do it undercover. You have to do it using not, not in a malicious way, more like you know not not with any malice, but if you want to get accurate data on what people actually do, um, it's the only way to do it. Mm-hmm. And then just to kind of wrap up our discussion of uh, this book and this work, um, what do both of you see as the sort of the largest or the most important structural factors uh, sort of that stand in the way of or might hinder the successful implementation of this approach in you know, a broader format? Uh, I think we've already talked about the issues with the electronic medical record. Um, I think there are also the, you know, the way that physicians now are paid, um, mm-hmm. even where there's a, a movement toward pay for performance, the way that performance is measured, as Saul has, has alluded, um, is almost entirely through um, the chart, um, the, the medical record. And we know that there are problems with that. And, and we know that we're likely going to be incentivizing um, care that is not going to be contextual. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a, you know, if you want to talk about really big structural changes that need to happen. Um, one of them is at, at the level of kind of the healthcare payment system. Mm. I mean, just to, again, put it very, um, in a very basic sense, we are, we are all um, motivated by what we know is being measured about our performance, right? So right now, um, doctors are measured by what they put in the chart. Um, if doctors knew instead that uh, they're periodically being audio recorded, either by, otherwise by other, either by patients who are volunteering to do it, or fake patients who are coming in. They don't know which ones. That is going to change um, what they prioritize, and if they know that data is going to be used, ultimately, um, not in a punitive sense, but it's going to be used in the same way chart data is used now. Performance assessment is going to be used for giving them uh, feedback, for um, in some cases perhaps determining what their performance pay will be. Then they will uh, having a, an incentive. To pay, to pay, put a higher priority on how they actually interact with the patient, um, and uh, and that's critical because as long as you're not measuring it, it ain't going to happen. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, so I we discussed this earlier, but I would like to hear from both of you. What are the what are the next steps of uh, this project, or what are some other kind of current research projects that either of you have going that are, you'd like to tell us about? Well, we're just about to start a biggie um, in October. Um, we got a lot of funding um, to start a project funded through the Veterans Administration 
to study the QI project itself and to expand it. So we're going to be expanding this QI project, to, again, where we invite thousands of veterans to audio record their visits and then code that data and feed it back to the practice so they can improve. Uh, we're now doing that at two sites in Chicago. We're going to expand it to four sites in Chicago and also to a site in Los Angeles and Cleveland. Mm -hmm. um, and then we're going to be collecting several types of data. One is we're going to be looking at um, whether the feedback process itself leads to better performance as measured by our 4C method. Um, so is it working? Two, um, is it actually leading to better outcomes for patients? So we'll be tr tracking those patients over time. Um, and three, um, is it uh, leading to um, lower costs? Is it, uh, does fixing this problem actually result in um, uh, less overuse and misuse of medical services? Uh, so those are the three biggies. And then in addition, we're going to be doing what's kind of called um, implementation assessment, where we're going to actually be um, doing kind of qualitative interviews with doctors, patients, administrators to kind of figure out how they feel about it. Do they think it's working for them? Do they feel safe? Um, and collecting all that data as well. Mm -hmm. And then outside of the, the VA and, and the university, we have a, a company now that um, is trying to bring uh, some of these ideas to, to market, to provide opportunities for practices and payers uh, to have their uh, visits uh, audio recorded and um, assessed by unannounced standardized patients um, for performance improvement. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a very unusual company um, because our business is sending fake patients to people. And that's our main product line. And uh, it's called um, I3PI, which is the Institute for Practice and Performance Improvement. And uh, we actually did a, a job recently um, with the American College of Physicians uh, where we sent fake patients to practices in Washington and uh, Virginia. Uh, of course, they knew. Um, and um, it was fascinating. So we sent in actors who uh, portrayed themselves as having diabetes. And, you know, we discovered that um, they would uh, come out and with their, you know, they, for instance, uh, the doctor would put in their note that they examined the patient's feet for diabetic sores. And the actor would report that no one took their shoes off. Um, and so and now that's, unfortunately, doctors are often using templates um, in the electronic rhetoric. And the default on those templates is normal exam. So, you know, the doctor just checked, or just checked normal exam when, in fact, the exam didn't happen. So the feedback we gave to those practices was have your um, assistants, uh, the, the nurse assistants, just tell patients to take their shoes off and their socks off if they have diabetes before, they, before the doctor walks in. And then we found that when we sent in another wave of fake patients, that this time they were getting the exam. So we were able to fix a problem that no one knew existed. Um, and the only way we could determine that was by sending in these fake patients. So our hope with our company is that people will see this as an opportunity to really find out what kind of care patients are getting. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And actually, I want to wrap up with one more thing because I usually when I ask this question, it's sort of about the next, the next book, right? And so first, is there another book? And then second, <laughs> what was it like turning this into a book, and why? You know, a lot of the a lot of the time, the forum for these uh, this kind of research would be, you know, in the uh, Journal of the American Medical Association or you know, comparable uh, forums. So, why turn this into a book for popular consumption? Well, we've written all those papers already. I mean, we've written um, tons of papers for you know, Annals of Internal Medicine, JAMA, SJM, all over the place. But we wrote this book because, boy, do we have a story to tell. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it's a very unusual story because this isn't typical boring research where you're sitting at a computer and just crunching <laughs> data. This is sneaking fake patients into places, asking real patients to all you record their visits, um, you know, having to deal with um, frightened bureaucrats and paranoid, you know, and et cetera, et cetera. And so we, we had a real yarn to tell. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, a lot of you know people write you know kind of doctor books. Um, that are just kind of opinions. This is not opinions. This is a book of hardcore evidence that we have spent 10 years um, uh, assembling. And, you know, we just felt like it should all be in one place um, and rather than just in a ton of papers. Mm-hmm. Great. I, ho- I hope that one day, though, there might be another book uh, for <laughs> patients. Um, mm-hmm. I think that we might one day be able to study what kinds of uh, things patients um, can do to try to help their Physicians help them. I mean, the responsibility is on the physician um, to probe and to understand context. Um, but maybe we can identify some some ways that patients can either uh, facilitate that or identify those physicians that are going to do it well and seek those physicians. I and mean, I think most of all, we're hoping to light a fire. I mean, we feel like we've come upon something really important um, that's been in the shadows, um, a huge um, problem in healthcare that's fixable. And, um, and we're exposing it. Um, and we want other people to, um, to, to start to look at these same issues because we think they're so important. And we alone can't really tackle this problem. All we can do is light a fire. Great. Well, Saul, Alan, thanks so much for your time. And uh, for those of you listening, this has been another episode of New Books in Medicine. Definitely go uh, and check out uh, Alan and Saul's book. Thanks so much.